there is a, uh, a great cartoon about bad leadership that I found recently. It shows a large group of people gathered around a boss, and the boss says, you see, I set a bad example, so I try not to lead by example. Of course, we could magnify examples. Uh, I think of the many, many Dilbert cartoons that I've seen over the years. One time where Dilbert's boss comes out and says, I want to be a more hands-on leader. And so he walks over and stands over Dilbert's shoulder and he says, no, 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 with the left, move the left, left. And he's telling him like how to move his mouse. Uh, again, we could go on and on. And obviously the joke is because there is a lot of bad leaders. There's a lot of bad leadership. But before we get into leadership too much, that is the centerpiece of our text, as we'll see. I want to set some more context for us here. Because we've come to an interesting point in the book of Joshua. Now, you remember at the beginning when we set this book up, we talked about how there's kind of two major sections in Joshua, you could say. There's chapters 1 all the way up through 12, which is the preparation for the crossing of the Jordan and the taking of the land. And then we have chapters 13 through the end, which is the parsing out of the land. And so we are now at this point where the first initial part of the conquest has begun. And one commentator put it well, is that from up until this point, Israel has chosen their, their next conquest, their next location. But now in chapters 9, 10, and 11, they will no longer get that choice. They are going to be confronted. Uh, at least that's the way the story, the story, the narrative plays out. So in fact, in chapters 9 and 10, we have what's called the Southern Conquest. Uh, and we'll look at chapter 9 today. And next week, James will look at chapters 10 through 12. So we'll be looking at both the Southern and the Northern Conquest. And uh, the southern conquest comes about because there's a group of kings, this coalition of kings that comes up to attack. But they actually don't come to attack Israel, we learn in chapter 10. They come up to attack Gibeon, the Gibeonites. And so we have to have chapter 9 is like this kind of break almost to explain why it is that Israel cares about the Gibeonites. And so that's why the, the title of this sermon was The Deception of the Gibeonites, because that is the main thrust of what's happening in the narrative. But you'll see the main theological points of this chapter are all wrapped up with leadership, as we will see. So that's kind of the layout here of this book. So we had uh, one through four is kind of up to and crossing the Jordan. Then you have five through eight is the first parts of, of the conquest. And it was bracketed by that covenantal language. If you remember, they renewed the circumcision and had Passover. And then they had the renewal of the, the covenant again at the end of chapter eight, as we saw. And now nine through 12 is going to be the rest of the conquest. Now they're taking a long period of time and squishing it down into a narrative. So remember, this isn't literal history in the sense of meaning that it's looking to be technical and, and line by line going by years, it's a theological history. Uh, so that's why we'll see what we see. <clears throat> but again, I call it a break because these Gibeonites have to be explained. So the rest of the conquest or the next phase of it has to do with these Gibeonites. So look with me actually, verses one and two here of chapter nine, and we'll get kind of a setting because these two explain the setting and then we break off and the rest of chapter nine becomes this kind of parenthesis or break as we were. So verse one and two of Joshua chapter nine. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. <clears throat> so again, that's what's happening, this coalition. But we're going to find out in chapter 10, it wasn't exactly quite so clean. They actually go up and they besiege Gibeah, as we will see. But with that in mind, we're going to look at verses 3 through 27. Verses 1 and 2 there basically set out the whole context of chapters 9 and 10. Uh, and, but we'll look at the rest of chapter 9 here under two points. So verses 3 through 15, 
We will have when leaders fail to pray. And then we'll have when leaders make hard choices in verses 16 through 17. So when leaders fail to pray, 3 through 15. And when leaders make hard choices, 16 through 27. So with that, why don't we go ahead and read uh, verses 3 through 15 here. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning. And they went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn out and torn uh, and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all our inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So again, this sermon is titled Gibeonite Deception. I hope you see why it is that we're going to be talking about leadership. It was Joshua and the leaders of the congregation who are in the centerpiece of this part of the story, as we will see. This will become even more clear in our second point as well, because the people are going to grumble against the leaders. But as we see from these verses, the Gibeonites were very intentional about seeking to deceive Joshua. They gathered up all this old stuff, and they they sought to make themselves seem as though they were from a far and distant land. Now, we don't know for sure if they knew Deuteronomy 20, um, but if they did, there was a provision in Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 and 11 in particular, that for cities that were far away from Israel, they were allowed to make allies with them. If that city would open their gates to them, then they would be allowed to spare them and make them into forced labor uh, camps. So we don't know if the Gibeonites may have somehow known that. Um, we don't know if that's why they claim to be from far away. But clearly, they were banking on the fact that they could sell this idea of being from far away and having the Israelites make a covenant with them to protect them, which is interesting, too, because it makes them seem as though they they really trust the integrity of these Israelites. Like, wouldn't they make a a covenant with them? And covenants between different peoples were, were pretty common in those days. But so the Gibeonites get all this old stuff, and they make themselves look as they've traveled across vast deserts. And notice, they come to Joshua, then the leaders with this treaty. Now, the narrator helped us out in verse 7. There's a narrator's note there. He calls them Hivites. Have you caught that? He's, he's letting us know what's going on there. Because if you remember back in verse 1, it specifically said that the Hivites were some of the people that aligned themselves to come after uh, Israel. So these are clearly part of the people who were cursed 
They were, they were the people specifically told by God that were not allowed to be made a treaty with. Um, <clears throat> but these Gibeonites, a subset of the Hivite people, uh, decide to, to do this trickery. And you'll notice at first, Joshua and the leaders are a little skeptical. They're like, well, how do we know? You haven't just, you know, come from over the hill. Uh, you, you know, you said for distant land. How do you know? And notice the Gibeonites' response. Actually, let's go ahead and read verse 9 again, because it's interesting. They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. Notice the capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. They know the covenant name. So like Rahab had earlier, they have heard, they clearly know. This is where we get uh, Yahweh or where others have added vowels and turned it into Jehovah. Uh, but this is the covenant name that God had revealed to Moses back in the Exodus. And so just like with Rahab, she too had known the covenant name, so do they. And not only do they know the covenant name of God, they knew their victories east of the Jordan. Notice that. They specifically mentioned what God did to the Egyptians and then what he had done east of the Jordan. <clears throat> now they didn't mention either Jericho or Ai. And again, this goes into their cunning. They couldn't mention those because they're allegedly traveling a great distance. So how would they have known about what happened to Jericho and Ai? Uh, they, would, they wouldn't. And so the Gibeonites were thorough in their deception. And then finally, they claimed that they'd been sent from the elders of their land with provisions to make this covenant of peace. And they show this ruined bread and wineskins and so forth. So in verse 14, then, we get the response. And this is actually, if you're, you're kind of mapping out the structure of this passage, this first section, this would be the height. This is the point of no return. Because notice in verse 14 and 15 what it says. So the men, that is the leaders of Israel, took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Now, what's interesting is in the Hebrew, it fronts this asking counsel. You could kind of woodenly translate the Hebrew like this, but the mouth or maybe the words of the Lord, they did not inquire. So even the Hebrew text is making a big deal. They did all this and they didn't ask of the Lord. This failure to inquire of the Lord is then verse 15. It's pinned on Joshua. So we said before, Joshua was the one who was seen to, to get the credit for the victory, but he's also the one who gets the credit for this failure, specifically because he was the one who made this choice. He makes a covenant of peace with them, to live with them, him and the leaders of the congregation. So again, I hope you see how leadership is the core, the center of the theology of this text here. Uh, and as I've said, so this emphasis is clearly leadership, but specifically, we, we would say here that the emphasis is on the prayerlessness of leaders. Though we have to do a little bit more work because while the, 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 the failure of prayer is certainly a key part of what's going on here, there's a little bit more going on. You need to have a little bit more history to help because I'm going to say that this is the failure of prayer, but then also the failure of wisely seeking God's counsel, specifically in his word. And here's why I would make that, make that connection. Uh, we're going to obviously make a lot of this application today will be aimed at my fellow elders and I, because this is a passage for us. But of course, the whole Bible applies to all Christians. So uh, the specific failure to pray is certainly something that would apply to us, but it would apply to all of God's people. But here's, the, let me give you the background to make, you, make sense of why it is I say it's not just prayer. It's also seeking God's wisdom as well, which would apply for us specifically in the word. <clears throat> See, for Joshua, this matter of prayerlessness uh, is connected to his commissioning. So if you're familiar with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that he had been commissioned as a leader over Israel. And when that happened, 
he was specifically told to go to the priest and to seek the Lord speaking to him through the Urim or Urim and Thummim from the priest. Now, we don't know exactly what the Urim and Thummim are. There's different, different thoughts. Uh, some have said that maybe like dice are like flat things and there's like a yes side and a no side and, and that's the way that the, the priest would, would get answers from God. It seems to be used this way with David um, uh, in Keilah later on in his life. But the reason this passage highlights that Joshua made peace with them without prayer is because anybody who knows anything about this knows about Joshua's commissioning. So I'm going to read you a section of Numbers 27, verses 12 through 23, to get set the stage of this is what anybody would have realized that Joshua failed to do was this. So here's a section from Numbers 27. So the Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people um, as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin. When the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, at the wilderness of Zin. So Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation and you shall commission him in their sight and you shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. Then he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word, they shall go out and at his word, they shall come in both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hand on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So see this incredible scene, this commissioning of Joshua, where the the specific element of Joshua's leadership was bound up with inquiring of the Lord, of going to the Lord for wisdom, for direction, via the priest and the Urim and Thummim. This is why I say there's more at stake here than just prayer. Certainly not less than prayer, but it's prayer and obedience to seek God's leading, to seek God's wisdom. Joshua had been commanded to do so, and he failed to do so. Now, perhaps he failed for, because, you know, they just had this wonderful covenant renewal a little while ago, so he was feeling very refreshed, very full. Perhaps he failed because he had a gut feeling, uh, you know, there seems to be, as we'll get to a minute, there's a, a relational capital that's built. I mean, these Gibeonites do a great job of that. Perhaps he was being lazy. Maybe he was tired and forgot. I mean, the possibilities are endless, but the consequences were tremendous. So now that we have a larger context, let me apply this passage again, first to the leaders, to my fellow elders and to the elder candidates as well. How are we doing at faithfulness in prayer? At being faithful to seek the Lord for wisdom? in his word. How are we doing at being completely submitted to his word? Brothers, I know it can be far too easy for us to have success in one area of life or have a gifting in one area of life. And that causes us to assume or to just act out of habit 
It can be far too easy to, to come off of a high victory or, or a great win or something, great leadership moment like he had done at the end of Joshua 8 and to allow that to try and carry us over instead of active, continued dependence on the Lord resulting in either prayerlessness or in a failure to truly engage in God's word deeply, carefully, exegetically, submitting to it. So what can end up happening is we substitute folk wisdom or gut feelings for God's revealed will and commandments. Again, I, this, this is for me as well. This is the same application as for all of us. God's word is no respecter of persons. So for all of us elders, how are we doing? It's been said that prayerlessness is a supreme example of pride and self-sufficiency. And I put in there as well, is, is not continuing to resubmit ourselves and our ideas to the word. So how are we doing in prayerful dependence on the wisdom of God's revealed word? Do we default to a Joshua approach where earthly wisdom leads instead of heavenly wisdom? Brothers, let's press on in that. And church, pray for us that we would press on in submitting to the word in prayer. Now, did you catch something about the Gibeonites here? If you've ever studied any rhetoric, I, I thought this is a fascinating passage. It's almost like the Gibeonites could be teaching a rhetoric class some, you know, 16, 1800 years before Cicero or Cicero, if you prefer. You know, they had sought to establish these relational connections. They, they come in with the logos, pathos, and ethos so strongly. They build this great relationship with them. Tell them, and they build them up about what a great job you did with Egypt and these other kings. And, and they built this great relational common ground. And it was enough relational capital for Joshua to disobey a command the Lord had given him. In his commission, he failed to inquire of the Lord, as we've said. So an important application drawn for this for all of God's people is does the word of God trump relational commitments? See, now granted, this would lean more towards leaders as well because Joshua was a specially commissioned leader. And yet notice the combination of whether it was rhetorical skill, whether it was his own self-confidence, or whether it was their ability to build relationships and get him to trust them, he completely ignored God's word meaning the way God had told him and commanded him to act and seek his wisdom. Hey friends, as a church, we dare not be more defined by our relationships with each other than we are with our relationship to and submission to God's word. Now, of course, those things don't have to be and should not be mutually exclusive. But it is to say that our submission to God's word has to be first and foremost and primary. Now, I want to get a little personal for a second, specifically for maybe more longtime members of this church. I think these are critically important questions for us to consider in the life cycle of this church. See, those who've been members for a while know that in the past probably five to six years, there have been something four or maybe five pastors or pastoral assistants who have left or been removed or some combination. And I know every one of those are very unique situations, and there's so much more to each of those stories. But friends, let's be serious for a moment. If this church is going to long endure, that kind of legacy would really need to stop. And this is a topic which the elders have been thinking and praying through. We've been asking questions like this. What church cultural elements, what church leadership elements have led to this kind of church history over a relatively brief period of time? I mean, these patterns should be deeply concerning. I, I thank God for the fellow elders because they are willing to have hard conversations, to think on these things. Friends, it will not do to pretend that these things didn't happen, to sweep them under the rug, and it certainly will not do to give pat answers. 
or to fail to consider the fact of many layers of causation? What are those other areas where, where we need to repent, where we need to change? We need to consider our cultural elements, relational elements, maybe even trumping true, full submission to God's word. So again, to the members of the gathering church, we continue to ask us to pray, to pray for us as we work through these things. Pray for us as we have these discussions about leadership patterns, which go back years. Pray for us for God's wisdom of making corrections going forward. Pray for us as we wrestle with our church documents. Uh, as you know, we're, we're working on establishing consistency in the governing documents. And as Brian mentioned earlier, there'll, there'll be some communication coming out towards that end. But there is much that we need to work through. And so we are thankful for your prayers. And we, we ask you to plead with the Lord for wisdom for us that we would lead well. And I thought what a wonderful kind providence of God it is that we are dealing with leadership in this passage, in this season of this church's history. It is an important point for us, and I'm thankful for the Lord bringing this up for us. So that's the first point, when leaders fail to pray. And that brings us to our second point, when leaders make hard choices. Look at verses 16 through 27 with me. Verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, uh, Cheparah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. And Joshua summoned them and said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants, For a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because you did, because of you uh, and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hands. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. <clears throat> so this second half of the chapter, I as you saw, broke down into two parts pretty neatly. So there's verses 16 through 21 uh, and then 22 through 27. So first, it's the discovery of the Gibeonites' deceit and dealing with and then the leaders kind of having to react to the people. And then you have uh, also Joshua specifically calling out the Gibeonites. So we'll start here, verse 16 through 21. Now, we're not told how, but somehow they come to find out, the leaders, particular teams, and Joshua, oops, we, we messed up. They lied to us. They deceived us. They tricked us. And so they go to confront them, and they have to travel three days to get there. And to confront them. And what we get here is the way that the story is told is great. First, it's the leaders dealing with the people. And this word grumble, this is the same word used over and over again in Exodus and and in the Pentateuch for the people grumbling against Moses and the Lord. But it seems like this might be the only time the grumbling is probably fairly justified in that they're grumbling against the failed leadership. 
of Joshua and the other leaders. And so they grumble, and Joshua's response and the leader's response that they make their mistake, and they swore to an oath to protect these men, and so they needed to keep them alive. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned, next chapter, chapter 10, uh, they're not just going to keep them alive. They're going to come to their defense in chapter 10. So they swore an oath of peace with them. However, they would make them forced laborers as a curse for their trickery. Uh, They'd be woodcutters and drawers of water. But as we'll see, uh, that's not raw servitude. Because again, did you catch the the saying that Joshua says, some of you may never, you may never be or shall never be anything but servants. Uh, It seems like there might have been an open door for them to to join Israel like a Rahab did. We'll, We'll get to that in a bit. But what we learn here is the importance of oaths. Uh, notice, these leaders, even though they were deceived, they cling to their oath because it was an oath before the Lord. So we could say, are we people of our word? Now, even though they'd been lied to, they refused to back down on this oath. And for God's people, this should very much be the case for us. When we swear an oath, we should be people of our word. One commentator used this great funny little illustration. <clears throat> he talked about his son. He says he does not allow betting or gambling in his household uh, because his, his belief is that it's a denial of God's sovereignty and providence. And so his son knows he's not allowed to gamble. Well, the son had decided to, even though it was against his dad's rules, his son decided to bet $3 on a baseball game uh, with his neighbor kid or a classmate in school. And um, the, the, he lost. And he only had $2 and like 17 cents or something. So he had to borrow the rest of the money from dad. So notice, even though dad is completely against it and told him no, his word needs to be his bond. He needs to be a man, a young man of his word. So he makes him take the money to pay this other young man. Now, thankfully, that other young man's father wouldn't let him take the bet either because he said he shouldn't do that. But at one point, uh, the commentator writes this. Is sometimes God's people are called to live obediently amidst the results of their own folly. There are times when our preferences, our conveniences, or justifications must not be allowed to dissolve those difficult situations. So how about for us? Do we consider it of the utmost significance to be people of our word? Before we sign our name to something, before we commit to something, do we think carefully so as to ensure that we will not be going back on our word? I mean, Jesus spoke about this. Matthew five thirty seven. Uh, the CSB renders it well. It says, let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. So we can see how seriously Joshua and the leaders took this reality. And there's all sorts of practical implications for thinking about our word and being people of our word. Here's just a couple. First, let's think of this one. Christian divorce rate. Now, I realize there are scripturally supported cases of divorce. Jesus himself speaks to it in Matthew 19. But we need to acknowledge that there's a stain on the church and on Jesus' name because of the divorce rate of Christians. Now, part of that is because there's some churches that don't exercise church discipline, so people get to continue to call themselves Christians when they're just in rampant disobedient and and abandoning spouses. But is our word our bond? This is why we speak of the importance of marriage, of sustaining marriage. It is an oath, a covenant sworn before the Lord. We have it all in our membership material. We believe that to break our word is to bring a dark mark on the Lord, on the name of Jesus, on his church. It harms families. In fact, there's been all sorts of reports about how COVID has created all sorts of tensions in the home. For a number of people, they're not used to spending so much time in in confined spaces. And for many marriages, there's been challenges. 
So that's why I'd say is the elders are so grateful for Nate and Amanda Winslow. They're getting ready to lead a handful of couples through the How We Love series. And maybe you weren't able to join this time. And maybe you're experiencing some of this marital strife. Uh, please don't wait. Be in communication. Whether it's another trusted couple here in the church or reach out to the elders. Don't allow marital discord to persist without reaching out and seeking counsel or discipleship. So there's just one practical area. There's many other examples which we could list. What are other places where you sign your name? Church covenants, business contracts, loans, credit cards. When you sign your name to these things, do you agree that you will not go back on your word? Does our yes mean yes in these areas? Let me press in on the debt one for a second. When taking out credit cards and loans, are we careful? Are we wise? Do we even ask for counsel from from those around us, from maybe other members or even one of the elders? Do we make sure that we can repay? Now, again, I realize there are situations in life which often come at us and blindside us. And thankfully, we have ways of negotiating things. We live in a country with with laws that, that even help in those situations. But the larger picture I'm driving at is if our yes is to mean yes, then when our name is signed to something, we are saying that is as good as who I am. I'm putting my name on the line. So we need to be very careful to honor our name. I'm very thankful, specifically speaking of the debt area here, is if that's an area where you're wrestling with or have wrestled with, I, I encourage you to reach out to Ron and Aletha Knopp. They have a wonderful heart for this area, and they work with financial peace. So if you need some help or discipleship, I know they'd love to speak with you on that. But to summarize again, notice how important this lesson is from Joshua. Even though the leaders failed, they refused to go back on their word. Now, the second part of this section shows that Joshua was confronting the Gibeonites for their deception. So he's dealt with the people, and now he's going to deal with the Gibeonites. And what's interesting is the Gibeonites totally go along with it. They they basically just roll over. Like, whatever you do to us is fine. Look once again at verses 24 and 25. And they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God, again, the covenant name, had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because you did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So like Rahab, they heard of the certainty of the Lord. Now, I'm not of the mind that the Gibeonites converted. There's debates among the commentators. Particularly, I would say, because 2 Samuel 21, this conversation comes up again. And it certainly doesn't seem like there was some big conversion. Whereas it does seem that was the case with Rahab. But I think it's fair to say that the hard decision of these leaders to do the right thing, to honor their word, meant that it allowed the Lord to introduce many of them to himself. Part of the reason for this is, did you catch what Joshua said they would be doing? Is that they'd be woodcutters and they'd be servers at the altar, particularly the altar where worship was done? One commentator summarized it nicely. He said, the Gibeonites were hereby brought into a situation where they would naturally acquire the knowledge of the true God and of his revealed will. They were made to dwell in the courts of the Lord's house. They were honored with near access to him in the services of the sanctuary. And thus, and thus placed in circumstances eminently favorable to their spiritual and eternal interests. So that brings me to the heart of this point. The willingness of the leaders to make hard choice of being men of their word, even when they were deceived, likely led to more foreigners being joined to the Lord. And I want to apply this this way to our current cultural situation. As Brian said it well earlier, the elders are seeking to be very intentional and careful and cautious and prayerful on how to deal with this situation of COVID and masks, of not being able to gather. 
What does this look like? How do we deal with this? Because our word is our bond. Our, our actions speak louder than our word. So part of the situation the elders are working through is there's a desire for this church to be a gospel witness in this neighborhood for years to come. And what we do will speak volumes to this neighborhood. Now, it may very well be the right decision to go along with the John MacArthur, who him and his church uh, had decided that they were going to exercise civil disobedience and that they were going to start meeting again. And they started to do that. But I would say, and I think the elders are all agreed, that this is a decision which requires a lot of patience and prayer because that action sends messages, strong messages to our neighbors. And that message could be a hindrance to the gospel. Here's just a real life example. There's a place I frequent in my neighborhood and try to build relationships with the servers there. And I was there with a friend uh, the other day and this one server, we just started asking, hey, how are you holding up with everything? And she was seriously worried just about protecting herself and her loved ones. And we were just chatting and I was amazed to me how upset she was. She's like trying to like not engage with anybody and like really hyper social distance. I was, I was amazed that she was able to go to work, but she had to provide for herself and was very diligent with masks and everything. So what do you think happens if I go in there and I say to her, yeah, well, we just decided to meet. I mean, you know, some, some folks might wear masks. They might not. We're just cramming in. So you're just going to cram in? Yeah, yeah, my church, this is what we're going to do. See, that might close the door to ever evangelize her because our actions speak louder than words. So in the hope of being able to invite her and her boyfriend to church one day so they can hear the gospel, I'm much more willing to be slow and patient. Now, maybe you have a different calculus on these topics, and that's fine. In fact, those are good discussions and conversations to have. I'd love to have them with you. But the elders are, are longing to be slow and prayerful and careful in this decision-making process. Because as Paul said, he wanted to remove every other hindrance to the gospel. And that would be our heart as well. So please continue to pray with us as we think through these matters. And that brings me to the final application point, or this final application point brings me to how this text connects to the gospel. See, we've seen how the Gibeonites had heard a report of the Lord, your God, the covenant name, and that they were told of the certainty of the Lord bringing judgment. And so we saw in verse 26, did you catch it? It says, so he, Joshua, did this to them, that is, he made them he made them forced laborers or slaves and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. Now there's some wonderful word plays and kind of puns going on here because Joshua's name means the Lord saves. So the Lord saves, delivered the Gibeonites from the people. Dear friends, I would say that we are just like the Gibeonites in the sense that we have an instinctual realization that we are worthy of judgment, that, that we are not good enough. And that's why we spend our lives trying to prove ourselves, trying to be better, trying to make something of ourselves. And sometimes, like the Gibeonites, we might do it by tricking, by putting up a front. Other times, we might be like the Gibeonites, uh, or we might try to be like the other nations that seek to prove we can fight. And so we come out with arms ready for war, just to battle it out to show how great we are. But there's no escaping the judgment. Because the whole Bible storyline actually shows us that salvation actually comes through judgment. And this is why for those Gibeonites who did turn to Yahweh, their deliverance, their salvation, was ultimately brought about by the other Joshua. That is Jesus of Nazareth. Because he took the judgment that they deserved. You see, friends, Jesus is the only leader who never failed to pray. And the only leader who perfectly made the hard decisions. Even when that decision 
was to submit to the will of the Father and go to the cross and take the judgment that his people deserved. See, he went to die not for saints, but for sinners, so as to make all those who repent and believe in him fellow heirs, just as some of these Gibeonites who would have seen the worship of the Lord would have done. How many times would they have seen the Passover lamb slain? And we come to the New Testament and say that Jesus is our Passover lamb who was slain for us. So I was greatly encouraged by this passage. I hope you were as well. It made me think of that wonderful old song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. So would you join with me in prayer?